Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Sherry's Berries. Treat your mom to something sweet this Mother's Day with fresh berries dipped in chocolate starting at just $19.99. It's a great last-minute gift, and right now you can double your berries for just 10 bucks. Visit berries.com, click on the microphone, and use the code HANGUP. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com and the promo code HANGUP. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 4th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about Floyd Mayweather's victory over Manny Pacquiao and boxing's fight of the century, which put $100 million or more in Mayweather's pocket, even as it failed to live up to the hype. We'll also discuss the Los Angeles Clippers Game 7 victory over the defending champion San Antonio Spurs, whether the series was too good for the first round of the NBA playoffs. Finally, we'll look at the NFL draft and how the league assesses so-called character issues in the post-Aaron Hernandez, post-Ray Rice age. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Heard you had an encounter with uh, Jordan Spieth's golf bag over the weekend. I did. I was at the University of Texas Golf Club for my cousin's wedding. The more noteworthy encounter was that I stood right behind uh, Vince Young in the line to get scanned at the airport. I was trying to think of an analogy. I think being behind national champion quarterback Vince Young in the Austin, Texas airport, it's a little bit like being behind Jesus in the Bethlehem airport. Yeah, but they still would have scanned both of them. (laughs) Please lift up your robes. He's got a long beard and religious connotations. We're doing this special search. Put your cane through the metal detector. (laughs) Uh, hey, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's hey. Daily Podcast. Who's taller, Vince just, Young or Josh Levine? I am taller than Vince Young. 
He's definitely looks more like a pro athlete than I do. <laughs> Height is is not the only metric by which uh, pro athletes are measured. He did he did better than me in the standing reach, uh, the vertical. Yeah. I was a little better yeah. in the three cone drill. Yeah. Was either of you pulled aside for extra screening? Yeah, I was not able to chat up Vince because they pulled my computer out and like wanted it with that thing. I guess my takes were too hot in the computer. Set what off I the, like to do is the like, what I like to do is just keep my computer pretty uh, filthy, dirty, not content, just like grunge on it, and then go through a lot of airports. They wipe it clean. It's like a car wash <laughs> for computers. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will discuss last week's crowd-free game between the Orioles and the White Sox. Uh, to hear this segment and other bonus content on Hang Up and Listen and the Culture Political Gap Fests, other shows, sign up for Slate Plus, and you can do that at slate.com slash hangupplus. You can also get access to members-only events, that sort of thing. Yeah. If you want to try it um, without making any commitment, if you're just not into making commitments, I don't judge. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. You'll get a two-week free trial. Of Slate Plus, and you could hear yeah. our, you could hear our Orioles crowd free Orioles. We don't want it to be a crowd free Slate Plus segment. We don't. We, we want crowd. We want there to be many, 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 many more many men than at the Orioles game on Wednesday. Um, we're recording our call in show on Tuesday, May fifth. It will air on Monday, May eighteenth. If you're listening to this on May fourth and have a question for us, call. 7-7-HANG-UP-10. Leave it on the answering machine. If you're listening on May 5th or later, think about your question really hard. Maybe we'll answer it telepathically. Or maybe you'll just have thought about a question really hard. You went either way. Um, but yeah, that uh, Colin show will be coming up shortly. We uh, look forward to answering your questions. Uh, on Saturday night in Las Vegas, Floyd Mayweather beat Manny Pacquiao by unanimous decision claiming victory in the most hyped boxing match since probably Tyson Holyfield number two. That was the one where he bit the dude's ear off. And that is about um, the the kind of level of classiness you can expect from a major boxing match. Um, nothing that exciting. No appendages were were breached on Saturday, with the general consensus being that the fight was incredibly boring, I would say. Uh, Mayweather succeeded in preventing Pacquiao from hitting him. I did not watch this as it happened, instead managing to score a bootleg copy of the tape, which I watched on Sunday night. And so my evaluation of the fight, no doubt colored by the fact I paid $0 to watch it. But I thought it was so bizarre and goofy that I could not reasonably call it boring. So for example, tennis power couple Steffi Graf and Andre Agassi are just constantly on screen for the entire match. They're sitting near the front row. So if you're bored because nobody's hitting each other for a couple minutes, just check out Steffi Graf. See if she's enjoying herself. That Oh, that wasn't the regular broadcast. I think you got the bootleg from the tennis channel feed of it. Um, well, whatever I got was definitely worth the zero dollars that I paid for it. But along with being goofy, maybe boring, the fight was just horrible as a thing that exists in the world. It earned a remorseless domestic abuser a nine-figure payday. In his fight dispatch for Grantland, Brian Curtis asked, has there ever been a once-in-a-lifetime sporting event that made everyone feel worse than Mayweather Pacquiao? And my answer is, I don't think so, despite the presence of Steffi Graf on the Tennis Channel feed. Uh, Mike, what did you think? 
a once-in-a-lifetime sporting event that made people feel worse. Hmm. There have been several hyped final, finals uh, that have t- totally not lived up to the hype. But kind of any 12-round fight, this wasn't uh, a Leon Spinks 91-second job, right? Any 12-round fight. Michael Spinks. Yeah, Michael. It wasn't Michael. It wasn't Lynn. No Spinkses were Spinks. <laughs> And by the way, what walks on two legs in the morning and then falls down on two legs in the afternoon? The Sphinx Brothers. Um, that's the riddle of the Sphinx. No fight that goes 12 rounds. And you have two of the best boxers at avoiding punches in the welterweight division, maybe history. Wasn't that unforeseen? Neither of these guys have scored a knockout in whatever it is, six fights for one, five fights for the other. I don't think the result was unforeseen. Match it to the unbelievable amount of hype. Add in, or maybe it's a multiplier and an exponent by Mayweather's horribleness. Seems inevitable. Seems inevitable that this was going to be a rather boring 12-round decision that made us all feel bad except for Beyonce's shirt. (laughs) In boxing, defense is the absence of something, right? You're preventing someone from hitting you. So we often think of defensive games in other sports as being less exciting than, you know, for example, a game with like 10 or 12 touchdowns. But at least in football... Like defense is J.J. Watt sacking something. That's action. It's Richard Sherman intercepting a pass. In boxing, Floyd Mayweather is known as um, the greatest defensive fighter of his era. And what that means is nothing happens. It means that he avoids getting punched and he will occasionally dart in and, and throw one himself. But this is kind of the evil genius of Floyd Mayweather, right, Stefan? It's that his out of ring personality is unappealing. Unappealing is an understatement. He's just a horrible, awful, loathsome person. His in-ring performance is not at all enjoyable. The crowd is booing him. They're chanting for for Pacquiao. And yet, just with sheer force of personality, he's able to to generate these fights, partly because people want to root against him. But it's the whole Money Mayweather persona. I mean, the guy is like a, a branding and marketing Savant. Like, it's hard to think of another example of someone who's so reviled for what he does outside the ring. And nobody actually likes to watch him box either, except for the sports aficionados, which you could put in a thimble at this point. Right. Which makes all of this such a terrific mystery. Why did this generate $300 million in revenue? Why was this so hotly anticipated if, as it seemed, so many boxing writers and talking heads were predicting that Floyd Mayweather would continue to play defense. He would repel whatever Pacquiao tried to throw at him. And then when it turned out that Pacquiao didn't seem to have a sort of coherent strategy, both the in-fight announcers and then I was reading some columns afterward, everyone sort of agreed that Pacquiao's approach was a, a loser from the start, that he tried to attack Mayweather head on. And that just doesn't work with Mayweather. I mean, Mayweather stood in effectively the same position for 80% of the fight and didn't attempt to introduce any level of severe damage on Manny Pacquiao. So the question then becomes, why does the boxing establishment and fans, why was there such an expectation that this would be well, isn't the answer such a great that, fight? And, is it pure? It's purely marketing because yeah, I mean, that's it, what bo- boxing is. Isn't the answer, and Mayweather was upfront about this, that he delayed the fight for five years to make more money off of it, mm-hmm. to build the anticipation and build the anticipation he did, Mike. Yes, he did. 
Yeah, I, I don't know that Pacquiao at this age, at this phase, had better tactics to rely on. I do think that it's not implausible that this will be the last great title fight ever, and it wasn't a great fight. Uh, you know, people are saying that. People are saying this writes bo- boxing's obits, and I don't want to be, um, let's see, Caucasian-centric, American-centric, because it is true that throughout the world it's a bit more popular than America, certainly like in the Hispanic community is really popular. But, you know, unless there's a U.S. heavyweight champion, which is not unforeseeable, one of the top, uh, pound, even pound-for-pound pound guys, I think the ninth-ranked guy by rings, uh, uh, an American. So if, a United, if, if an American could challenge for the heavyweight championship and not, you know, fight in that boring Klitschko-esque style. I could see maybe boxing rebounding. But, you know, if you were to say to me, this is the last time anything like this happens with boxing, I'd believe it. And I think some of the reason that people were so excited was just that people were so excited and that Jay-Z was there because, you know, he styles himself as the new Sinatra and the old Sinatra would have been to a heavyweight fight. So the new Sinatra goes to a heavyweight fight. I don't know if MMA or whatever is going to be the spectacle and sport that replaces boxing um, will ever get to that status. So it does. It did seem like uh, a little bit like uh, a funeral for the sport, which Luckily, given this sport, is only uh, an analogy. You know, people have been writing boxing's obituary for 60, 70 years, um, depending on who was at the top of the game at any particular time. I went back out of curiosity and looked at how uh, a big fight was covered uh, almost a century ago. I looked at the Jack Sharkey versus Jack Dempsey fight in July 1927 at Yankee Stadium. And... There was an extremely long advanced story in the New York Times the day of the fight, and it absolutely mirrored everything about modern boxing promotion and hype and fight analysis. There was a a tremendous amount of attention being paid to the gate. It was 1.25 million, a record at the time, 80,000 fans. The Times writer pumped up the pre-fight talk from both fighters. He wrote that this should be spectacular, thrilling, a pulse-throbbing struggle between two sturdy athletes primed for battle, the greatest non-championship battle in pugilistic history. There were three or four long paragraphs devoted to what celebrities and dignitaries were at the fight, the difference being that a lot of those were like the police commissioner of New York um, and the mayor and local officials, Irving Berlin, Babe Ruth, Joe Dugan of the Yankees, Gene Tunney, the industrialist Charles Schwab was there. Charles Schwab was there. Charles Schwab was there, yeah. Um, there's a focus on ticket prices, the purse, 250000 for uh, for Dempsey, no matter what would happen, the size of the radio audience, the betting lines, what the fighters did when they got to New York. Boxing hasn't changed. No, no, I totally disagree. First of all, some of the reason that there was the echo is because people were just trying to, like in those uh, future scenes in Groundhog Day, recapture the magic where Phil, the weatherman played by Bill Murray, just acted out what was once pure and, I don't know, pure, but was once enjoyable in a weird sort of doppelganger type way. I think that it's not true that people have been, maybe some people have been writing the obituaries, when, 70 years ago? When, when... I found some from the 1950s. I I was going to do my afterball about this. I found a couple from the 1950s. But people, people have also been writing the obituaries of newspapers for 40 years, and now they're coming true. People have been writing, before, yes, it's true that Mark Twain won once quipped about, you know, news of his death being, uh, uh, wait, what's the exact quote? 
misreported. Greatly exaggerated. Greatly exaggerated. Thank you. He's better. He's a better craftsman with words than I. People, so anyway, Mark Twain did once write that reports of his death have been greatly exaggerated. But what happened later? He died. Like there is no. <laughs> the, it, uh, I'm not suggesting that boxing is. But in, you had Ali. Equally... You had Tyson. You always had a pipeline. You always had ways that you could say, okay, it's waning. But now there is no pipeline. It definitely seems this was the death knell. The fight of the century by far, you know, didn't live up to the hype. I really do think, I mean, yes, it can survive in a niche way, but there's no plausible case to me. I just laid it out in American Heavyweight, but I don't see a plausible case that it really rebounds. I wasn't suggesting that boxing is as healthy and robust today as it was in 1927. I was merely suggesting that the way boxing markets itself and the way that boxing writers approach the sport really hasn't changed very much. The focus is less on... The writers are 78. <laughs> <laughs> well, people are excited to be excited, like you said, sure. Mike. And okay. I think there was also something about the scarcity, um, the fact that it was on pay-per-view for this exorbitant price. It's sort of like if there's a restaurant that's really expensive, people will assume that the food is good. And the fact that it was highly possible to stream the fight illegally, people were talking on the night of the fight about Periscope, the new app that allows you to stream video from your phone and that that was a way that people were watching uh, the fight. But there were also um, photos of people like on the streets of Brooklyn looking into someone's apartment at the TV screen that sort of called to mind like photos that you'd see from the 1920s of people standing outside a newspaper window like watching uh, or you know listening to the radio broadcast of a World Series game or something. There's something fun even with an event that has so many loathsome qualities, to th- there was a kind of a communal atmosphere around it, the idea that you just wanted to be a part of this moment, whether it's if you're a celebrity and you kind of need to see and be seen in the crowd, or whether you're like somebody on Twitter, like wanting to get a glimpse from an app that's you know shot by some guy's random camera phone. And that's, that is all marketing, the fact mm-hmm. that they created an event. And there's something kind of neat about the fact that circa 2015 you're still able to have events like this and if even if it's not boxing it's still you know hopefully we can have stuff like this in in the future but in like, the, in the case of this fight of in, in the case of this fight particularly it was all such a Potemkin village because the fight was terrible i mean even with <laughs> with Sharky and Dempsey well, that doesn't matter that was people controversial forget, people forget. I, that was t- terrifically controversial Dempsey kept hitting with low blows and Sharky turned to the ref to complain and Dempsey knocked him out with a left to the chin i think so it it's the artifice that i think is so annoying here and i think it's that's only compounded by the fact that Mayweather was such a, an unappealing character. Well, let's end by, um, I think, the perfect illustration of how this was all had a no cattle. And my favorite moment of the fight was Mayweather's introduction, which, as you'll see, just sort of never gets to the point and never ends. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to play that for you now. And his opponent across the ring on my left, fighting out of the blue corner, really needing no skills our sport has ever seen wearing black trunks with gold trim fighting out of las vegas nevada he weighed in at a ready 146 pounds a veteran of 24 world title bouts he is undefeated in his 18 year campaign with a record of 47 wins no losses 26 wins 
Ladies and gentlemen, here is the pound for pound great and the pay-per-view king, boxing's future Hall of Famer, the sensational 11-time world champion in five weight divisions. Please welcome the reigning, the defending, and the undefeated WBC and WBA welterweight and super welterweight champion of the world, introducing Floyd And that, my friends, was really the introduction this fight deserved. I think I think Jack Dempsey was introduced as the radio broadcast relay king. You know that it's a good introduction when uh, Jimmy Lennon Jr. says, a man who needs no introduction, mm-hmm. and then goes on for more than a minute. Yeah. And after there was 34 seconds of introduction after he said the words... Ladies and gentlemen, I found that impressive too. And then after all that, it starts off with the man who needs no introduction. And the last word is introducing. First of his name, of House Mayweather, mother of dragons. All right. Uh, Mother's Day is this weekend. Hey, I said mother. That's good. That's an awesome transition. Sure. And um, you need to get your mom something. Uh, she's berries? She's a really good mom. What about berries? She likes to eat food as she is a human mom. She needs sustenance to survive. Um, And what better food than the freshly dipped berries with decorative swizzles? Mm. Introducing berries (laughs) with a decorative swizzle of chocolate (laughs) known for their deliciousness and portability. They're dipped in white. They're dipped in milk. They're dipped in dark chocolate goodness. Make sure to cut the green thing off of the top before you eat it. And don't forget our code. Hang up. When you order. They're giant. They're fresh. They're juicy. They're delicious. And we've got a very good deal for you. Starting at $19.99. And it's the same price to get the strawberries in HD. No extra charge. Wow. More more than a 40% savings. And you can double the berries for just $10 more. But you have to use our code HANGUP. These berries are much less enjoyable on Meerkat and Periscope. (laughs) They are freshly dipped. They're starting in 1999. More than a 40% savings. And this offer is for hang-up listeners only when you use our code hang-up. Visit berries.com. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and type in hang-up. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and enter our code hang-up. Talk for a long time for something that didn't need an introduction. (laughs) Also on Saturday night. Also in the Pacific time zone. There was a sporting event that exceeded the hype. Let's apply the language of boxing and say that Spurs Clippers was a game that needs no introduction. And now I will read uh, a long list of facts about it. Um, this was the basketball game of the century. The Clippers won game seven of their first round series, 111-109, on a last second floater off the backboard by Chris Paul, who's playing through a hamstring injury that left him hobbling around for the last three quarters. 111-109 could have been a fight card. Could have mm. been. Yeah, wow. Good point. <laughs> Can't tell if he's being sarcastic or not. I love it. Uh, the bummer here is that we still have three more rounds of the NBA playoffs to go. The defending champion Spurs are out when it's clear they're one of the league's best teams. Don't go. Don't go, Spurs. Kawhi. Kawhi. Um, so should we be glad for what we had in this series? Or should we lament that it came too soon and demand reforms? to ensure that a series this good never happens again in the first round. Stefan. We should lament. Lament. What? Everyone lament. Good 
Oh, good. <laughs> yes, we need to lament. Uh, it's just the, the, the problem is that it draws attention to the fact that it was a great series. doesn't matter when they play. As long as they play and it's great, fantastic. We get to watch it. You watch it whenever they play. The problem is that there becomes this sub-narrative about how the NBA seating system is screwed up and how this was unjust and that these guys should have gotten to play longer into the spring. And I think that's a fair argument. Stefan Fatsis thinks it's Stephen, a fair, fair argument. It's a fair argument with Stefan Fatsis. And here's counterpoint with Mike Pesca. A uh, couple things. I think if the Spurs had won, you would not be lamenting this. I think both you guys wanted the Spurs to win. Did not. Would like to see the Clippers say, you know, hey, they gave us a lot of entertainment, but now justice is justice, and you might not be thinking about the underlying issues. Two, the Spurs are a 55-win team, you know, so are a lot of other teams. Not like their record. I know they got bumped down from the second to the sixth seed because of one loss, but they're right in there with a lot of other teams that, based on the record, are just as good as them. Three, if this was a game, if this was a series, like if this was a series between teams that we thought had no chance, right? And we had got a game seven out of, say, Wizards Toronto. It didn't even come close to that. And it was this good. And um, I don't know, Wall had the nagging injury. We would say, what drama? Thanks a lot. Nothing wrong with the process. So it does seem a little bit of a shame that the Spurs go out early, but maybe this is the thing now. The Clippers will be this perennial powerhouse and this is the huge hump they got over and we'll look back at this as a defining series i think there was nothing wrong with this although if the first round were once again five game series and this were game five i take that also well i think we want to see the warriors have to play the spurs or the clippers in round two and then the spurs or the clippers in round three rather than the grizzlies who are quite injured and don't seem like they're going to put up much of a, a challenge because i think the kind of um, big story of these playoffs is the Warriors are the team that had 67 wins in the regular season. Steph Curry is going to be named MVP this week. Um, one of the great all-time regular season teams haven't won in the playoffs so far. And so they're the team of the season. And you want them to be maximally tested as they go through the playoffs. You know, first round, whether it was the pelicans or the thunder they weren't going to have much trouble with that but you want them to go through the gauntlet of you know spurs clippers and then maybe lebron you want in the them finals. to go through the gauntlet of what is fair based on the results of the regular season mm-hmm. and the way that the nba structures the seedings in the first round of the playoffs is that the division winners get first, second, third, or fourth seed. There are three divisions in each conference. If your record is not one of the top three and you win a division, you get bumped down to the fourth seed. You can't be any lower than four. And that's what happened with the Portland Trailblazers. They were fourth. And that meant that the Clippers were third, the Spurs were sixth, whereas in based on the standings, the Spurs should have been, what, fourth? Is that correct? San Antonio should have been a five seed. They had 55 wins, Golden State at 67, the Clips and... Rockets had 56, and then Memphis and San Antonio both had 55, but Memphis had the tie break. Mm. So that first round series should have been Memphis versus San Antonio. San Antonio. But, then, but then everything else you said, I think, is fine. And I think that, that Adam Silver and some other sports executives are starting to cotton to the idea that divisions and conferences even are relics of a different era in American society. They made sense when the country was more regionalized, when players came from the places that they represented, when games couldn't be seen nationally, when travel was more cumbersome. That is not the case anymore. I mean, the the existence of a Western conference with three divisions doesn't really mean anything. 
anything. There are no genuine regional rivalries where the fan bases get riled up because we're playing each other. Yeah, this there's a MLS. few. You can. It's not. <laughs> this is not the Timbers against the Sounders. Um, there are a few where there is more interest, obviously, and some of those are historical. But generally, you can build that into the schedule so that the Knicks and the Nets or the Knicks and the Celtics or the Lakers and the Celtics or the Lakers and the Clippers play each other more or the Bobcats. Are the Bobcats still a thing? They are. St- they are still a thing, except they're called they're the Hornets now. The Hornets and the, <laughs> the Jazz, <laughs> or are they the Pelicans now? Um, so the teams that they, you know, where there actually is some reasonable real interest among fans, you can have them play each other. But otherwise, just decide who the best teams are based on how they do during the regular season, and let them play in the playoffs based on that order. And I think the NBA is going to start doing that. So, do you agree with that, Mike? Do you think that conferences and divisions are a relic? And I mean. Adam Silver has talked about this and there have been lots of brackets going around of what the NBA playoffs would look like if we just seeded the top 16 teams. Yeah, I think a little bit. Um, I think it's worse in hockey. I think it's, uh, I guess, better in football, which really does have division rivals when the rivals feel like rivals. Like if you told most I can't, I'm not going to say casual Celtics fan. There's no such thing. If you tell most casual Brooklyn Nets fans who are the teams in your division, would they know the Toronto's in their division and that, say, Chicago or Indiana or Atlanta is not in their division? I don't think right now, except the Knicks fans who really pay attention know that the Miami Heat aren't in their division. They seem like they're in their division. So no one even takes the divisions seriously or really feels the divisions except when you go and look in the standings. But it's such a, we're talking about one win. And if San Antonio wanted to change anything, Popovich wouldn't have done all those games where, that he essentially conceded, right? He could have gotten a better seed if he had played his starters once more. There are a lot of other things he could have done to have won one more game. So we're talking this whole right, you could, You're right. My, is you're the fact that right. he won 55 and not 56. And he was trying at the end. And in, in the last game of the season, he lost while giving a supreme effort. And that could have changed everything. So it's a little disappointing that they didn't get, we don't have a better second round matchup for Golden State, except maybe Memphis will surprise us. I think that another factor, and, and you're totally right about how, you know, with um, private jets and the fact that every game is on TV now, there, there's just less regionalism in all sports. But I think also the fact that the NBA is a star-based game and the fact that there's a salary cap mm-hmm. now, which means teams get remixed and recombined every year, I think that also weakens just identification with the team. I think that as somebody who's never... I mean, I, I root for the Pelicans now just because they're in New Orleans. I support the New Orleans teams. But I support all teams now. I like to follow the teams with the best players, whatever teams they happen to be on. And I think that the NBA is kind of more of a nationally based sport, at least than, you know, and I think the, And I think and the reason hockey, for that certainly. is that the NBA really didn't become a successful league until the 1980s. I mean, the roots for baseball and even football and certainly hockey go much farther back. I mean, you can talk about the original six in hockey and you can talk about the traditional rivalries in the NFL and certainly in baseball. I mean, the NBA really didn't become a thing until the 1980s. So you could argue that it serves both the best interests of the league and the best interests of the majority of fans just to come up with a system where the teams that are the best each year are in the playoffs. And I don't think you'll lose more by pissing off, you know, fans of the Brooklyn Nets than you'll gain by, um, you know, pleasing the national fan base by adding, you know, the Thunder, whoever else it would have been 
this year, um, you know, teams with a superior record. But Nothing can piss off fans of the Brooklyn Nets <laughs> more than the play of the Brooklyn Nets. They're fine. They've got that covered. It's like, all right, we're going to start a team. What do we need to do? All right, how do we piss our fans off? Check. Next. I don't know. I'm just kind of stymied. But as far as the as the Clippers go, this was really, um, as you kind of suggested, Mike, this does seem like kind of the type of game where if you look, you look back kind of um, after the fact and you see this as like a franchise changing or franchise defining game. It had all the markers of that. You had the superstar, Chris Paul, who's been one of the top five players in the league for, you know, so long who had not, you know, who hasn't made it out of the second round ever, hasn't made it to the finals. Coming through in a big game while hurt, like that's a career defining game. And then you have Blake Griffin with a triple double making jump shots, clearly showing he's a great all around player. You know, good game from DeAndre Jordan, JJ Redick, Matt Barnes showing that they're kind of a good all-around team as well. And so, you know, if we if we lament the fact that this came in the first round, I think we should also enjoy the fact that no matter what round it was, this was kind of a quintessential... This is a game, you know, and the, the results of playoffs are so easy to forget. There's so many games over the years. Um, but this is one that we'll remember. And, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't sneeze at that, sniff at that. What do you do it? What do you do with it? Cough at it. Sneeze. I will do. <laughs> cough and scoff. Yeah. I will. I will neither. Poo-poo. You I will neither cough it? nor nor scoff. Piss all over it. <laughs> Vomit upon it. Take a dump on it. Expectorate in its going. direction. Yeah. Shit all over it. I also think that it shows the uh, tissue thin difference between what we know and what we were wrong about based on, you know, one floating jump shot, right? There are so many things, especially in basketball, where you say, well, this just shows you got to blow it up. I mean, the the whole idea of winning with just Chris Paul and Blake, eh, that's kind of an old idea. It's not going to happen. You got to blow it up. Or Nowitzki, he'll never win a championship. You know, it was good, but you got to do different pieces around him. You got to blow it up. And you win a couple of surprising games that could go the other way, and then you realize, hey, this was sustainable, or it wasn't a bad idea or bad conception. All that happened was we got a few bad breaks. Maybe that's what we're going through with the uh, OKC Thunder, right? I, yeah. I've been saying on this show, they really have to blow it up, and the whole idea of star ball and clear outs for great players aren't going to win it. I don't know. You get those two guys healthy and watch them run to the finals. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. This game proved nothing, but it perhaps allowed them to keep this team together and accomplish what they would have accomplished anyway. All right. Hang up and listen is part of the Panoply Network. Here's a word from one of our sister podcasts. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter. I'm the host of Inc. Uncensored, a podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, technology, cool companies, and just about anything else that hits the like buttons of the fantastic people who write and edit for Inc. This week, we're going to be talking about, Maria? Why Apple Pay is winning the absolutely no stakes payments war. (laughs) Exciting. John? The squeeze for office space in Silicon Valley. And Will? And I'll talk about my trip to Denver, where I got to see hundreds of pounds of cannabis, fields of... Weed plants and tons of cash. There you go. Join (laughs) us at Ink Uncensored, part of the Panoply Network. Onward to the NFL draft. Uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers general manager Jason Licht told NFL.com's Judy Batista that the team looked for a reason to not draft Jameis Winston and they, quote, could not find one. I can think of a couple. There was the... uh, 
you know, the the rape allegation. There's the impending civil lawsuit over um, that rape allegation. And then there's just like the dumb stuff that NFL teams seem to care about when it's not done by franchise quarterbacks, the uh, stealing the frog legs. Crab. Stealing the, no, the, there was the other thing with the frog legs. You didn't hear about that? You think they're going to buy it? They're tasty too. You think they're going to buy that? Stealing the crab legs, the delicious crab legs. We had the conversation about crab or crabs, right? Legs. I don't know if we did. Crab's legs? Are they crab? Nobody crab's says leg? Crab, like nobody says crab's Lego legs. crab? I we had that conversation. Maybe not. Um, Different podcast. It's the crab leg podcast. But the, yeah. To, don't the crustacean podcast. Don't mix your uh, your seafood with your uh, sports non food. Um, Hang up and trafe. But the really kind of gross thing about Winston was, and uh, ESPN's draft coverage, right in the first ten minutes when they were talking about the Bucks selecting Winston, John Gruden says he's just really got to you know clean things up on the field and off the field. Um, and then they just go to like a cut up of highlights of interceptions that he threw. So just like the way that just so smoothly and seamlessly accused rapist and like poor field vision are combined in a, a evaluation of a player. What if they had used the video of him walking out of the Publix <laughs> with the crab's legs? You just got to clean up that judgment. Well, it depends. It, it depends if he opens up upon uh Upon leaving the Publix, it depends about, you know, if he has happy feet or if he strides purposefully. <laughs> Was it a five-step, five-finger discount or a three-step, five-finger discount? Did he steal it from out of the shotgun or under center? All these are the important questions. On the other end, so Winston goes first overall in the draft. Lael Collins, offensive tackle from LSU, is projected as a first-round pick, went undrafted after police in Louisiana declared that he was not a suspect in uh, the death of a woman that he was acquainted with, but they wanted to talk to him. Um, this woman was shot and killed by someone at her front door. She had an unborn child that born and then died a week later. It's a horrible story. And there's questions about Collins's involvement. He was not uh, drafted. He is now an unrestricted free agent. He's scheduled to pl- meet with police on Monday, um, that's today when we're recording this for questioning, um, he'll either be cleared and will sign with the team or won't be, won't be signed with the team. That seems pretty clear cut. Stefan, what did you think of the way that the Collins story was covered and how it played out with, with teams deciding not to draft him? I think what's interesting in the coverage is that there is a dearth of reporting of the simple fact that there is no public evidence that Lael Collins has done anything wrong in this case, that he was acquainted with this woman. He wants to be the police want to interview him, you know, from inside the NFL war room and inside the minds of the people that are interviewing prospects. You know, how much of that is NFL overreaction because of, in some ways, good climate they've been placed in, forcing them to be more attentive to the behaviors of their employees or their future employees. And how much of that is overreaction? He's a guy that wants to, that needs to be interviewed by the police. He's not connected in any way as far as we know. So this is weird. I mean, the fact that he wasn't drafted at all is weird. And yet, Jameis Winston goes first and every coach speak platitude about the guy 
is repeated ad nauseum on television. Well, the difference is that the Winston stuff um, has been adjudicated. Sure. And we might not agree with how it was adjudicated, but in terms of how it's viewed by the NFL as a red flag or a risk factor, it's a dead issue, right? You well, only in as much as the the the, the collection of red flags and and uh, a semaphore right, like Mike Pesca can certainly appreciate that collection of red flags. That there are so many of them, that you'd think that someone stood up and sa- would say, "We're concerned," rather than can't right. find any reason not to draft this guy. It put it puts it. L- in the category of a character issue rather than an ongoing criminal matter. Yeah, and also there's the question of what is news? That is old. This is new. Mm -hmm. There's the question of servicing your viewer in terms of giving them information versus retreading information that while it certainly raises ethical problems that has done so for years. And then there's the third question of this is a TV show meant to be an entertainment. And this does not excuse them. But of course, the draft would be a lot worse if they took our take or watching the draft the ratings would be worse and people would be bummed out if they took our take on Jameis Winston, right? If it was mostly kind of wondering about where our society is and where the issue of rape on campus is and how, you know, people can excuse the star athlete, that just, it just wouldn't fly for what they're doing. So we shouldn't let him off the hook, but I understand why it happens. I do think during the season, there were plenty of times where the stuff that Winston did, which showed he was a bad person, got conflated with character. And the only reason that would matter uh, to the NFL, because the NFL never wants to be in a position of saying, we don't like him just because he's a bad person, even though he could help our football team. You know, he's a bad person. It doesn't break the law, but he's just not a nice guy. But he's a great football player. You've never heard that. So, you know, it gets it. there's this necessary conflation with being a bad person. And I'll allow, you know, there's the possibility that he's not and what's a good and bad person. But a conflation with that and the stuff that matters to us, which is decision-making on the football mm-hmm. field. And we have this category called decision-making. And it's not, we also have this category called intelligence. I mean, we assume that Ryan Fitzpatrick went to Harvard as an intelligent football player. Is he? He makes a lot of terrible decisions with his brain in terms of interceptions. Like a lot of terrible decisions. But it's very hard, either because of the words we have or because of the way we think about intellect, to conceptualize this differently. Yeah, I don't think John Gruden, either he doesn't understand that distinction or he doesn't feel the need to make it. I think probably. Yeah, I don't think he struggles with that. No. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think I think that's a really smart point. Just the word or phrase decision making gets used in these two contexts when they are just not at all the same thing. And it's really... Galling. I think the reason that Winston goes number one, though, is the fact that everyone is disposable in the NFL except a franchise star quarterback. And if Winston is great, if he turns out to be a Hall of Fame quarterback, that's going to be the salvation of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers franchise, at least on the field for the next 10 right. or 15 and, years. And Lael Collins is probably more disposable. And Probably. So, definitely. I, I was thinking about this before the show today. If I told you that any player in the NFL that wasn't a quarterback was going to miss the year, would that like dramatically, any single player, would that dramatically mm-hmm. change your evaluation yeah. of how that I'd team say, would do? Except for J.J. Yes. Watt. That was J. the J. only Watt, one I could think of. But also, of. La- there, last year, Adrian Peterson definitely did. There were five, I think. And Lael Collins is not going to be one of them. No. Probably. Right. Um, and so... 
quarterbacks are going to be graded differently. But the paradox there is that at the same time, it does seem like if you're a bad person in PESCA terminology, if you are a, a bad leader, if all of these things that get lumped into the other stupid word intangibles, like that stuff is actually relevant for a quarterback. And there is no way if I was the general manager of an NFL team, which there's no risk of that ever happening, I would not get Jameis Winston within 100 miles of my franchise. And especially I wonder, when, I wonder how many of the 32 teams would have picked him number one. If especially it would have been all 32 when or? there was Marcus Mariota sitting there at number two. I mean, again, we really can't evaluate whether Marcus Mariota will be a better NFL quarterback than Jameis Winston will be. We're not capable of making that determination. But it does seem from all the evidence available that people think that Marcus Mariota has a pretty good chance of becoming a good quarterback in the NFL, too. And these the, the distinction or the gradations between these two athletes at this point in their lives are probably marginal. So you do have to wonder, like, what the hell are they thinking? Like, what tipped the scale so heavily toward Jameis Winston versus the athlete that was selected immediately after him? In terms of the the character stuff in the media, I mean, the, the problem is that it all gets conflated, as you alluded to, Mike. I mean, Baton Rouge police said Collins is not a suspect in this in this murder. And yet, one of the headlines I came across when Googling the, the, his story was, is NFL draft prospect connected to murder? That was a headline on <laughs> NewJersey.com. Yeah, um, is it a curi- one, is curiosity it a one, gap. Curiosity one, gap, yeah. Is it a one-word uh, one article? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, another headline, this was in the Baltimore Sun, uh, character counts in first round as several NFL draft prospects plummet. Collins was one of those, obviously. Another was, uh, was Randy Gregory, the Nebraska lineman, who plummeted all the way to, what, number 60 in the second round taken yeah. by the Cowboys. <laughs> Another was Doriel Green Beckham. These are very different stories. Doriel Green Beckham allegedly pushed someone down, a woman, down a flight of stairs and was arrested a couple times for marijuana possession and kicked out of Missouri, out, off the football team. Randy Gregory, there were some issues with marijuana, but then there were these mysterious issues about his makeup. Concerned his, about Gregory's ability to handle the mental rigors of professional football, according to more than a dozen uh, coaches, scouts, personnel, chiefs, and GMs. That so was that, an NFL.com story. Is that a dog whistle for he's depressed? Is it a dog whistle for he's dumb? What is it? You know, he's off my board. That's all it is. I want to say a couple things. One of the reasons why the Collins thing happened as it did is because he acquiesced. And Mike Florio and others have pointed out that the weird rules of the draft are that if he he wants to get drafted in the first round and then maybe the first 10 picks, he's better off being a free agent, like a highly skilled free agent who has first round talent, but isn't taken even in the third, definitely third round or later, and probably even the late second round. So he didn't fight it as much. And that's one of the reasons we have this weird specter of Jameis going first and this guy with just some questions around him going never. I also think that if you are on an NFL team, as much as they want to say character and as much as they want to say, you know, we're a family, they look at it like this. Jameis Winston, what he did, all of his mistakes, shouting stupid things, stealing from Publix, possibly raping this girl. 
if we were in an, a totally amoral universe, you don't care about morality, you only care if that stuff raises real indications that he won't be able to do the things you need to do from him as a football player. If we're talking totally amoral and he's just a football playing machine, will that football playing machine in college be a good football playing machine in the pros? I think a lot of these guys look at that rape and say, it doesn't, it has no bearing on his ability to play football. I think there is a change, and people have said this, that violence against women does raise red flags. It raises red flags about your comportment and how well you take adversity. And I don't know, I've at least heard people saying that they honestly believe that. It seems really clear that being messed up a couple times with having drugs or marijuana really does raise red flags. They question his ability to translate into a great football playing machine. The pros, I really honestly think that that they look at what happened with that girl as maybe it's a rape under the law, maybe it's not, but is it really going to happen in the pros? Is it really going to happen again? And he'll still be a great football play machine. That's, I think, what their mindset is. One final thought. There's a slight tweak you can make to that amoral universe, which is everything that you just said, plus factoring in that maybe this guy will be prevented from playing football because of being arrested or for being suspended by Roger Goodell. And I think that's a consideration that teams have, especially with guys who are caught with drugs or um, have a positive drug test. You get put in the NFL drug program, and Josh Gordon is a great wide receiver who is now unable to play for a whole year because of being in this drug program. And so with Jameis Winston, you'd imagine that one of the things that they would look at is, is this guy going to be a great football playing machine who can't play football because he is either in prison or suspended? Right. And and again, those aren't since it's not a drug problem and people will, and they presume that there will be no theft of crab legs once he's a millionaire. It's they think that it doesn't hurt his ability to be the football playing machine they think he could be. All right. It is now time for afterballs. And I think based on your performance in the first three segments of this show, Mike, we're going to give you a proven performance escalator. A PPE? Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Should we explain what a proven performance escalator is? Well, let's first say what your escalator is. You're going to be able to go first in the afterballs. Uh-huh. You're going to be able to choose whatever you want to talk about. Okay. Wow. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> a proven performance escalator is for NFL draftees taken in rounds three through seven. They're eligible for the proven performance escalators that'll bump their salary for the fourth year of a rookie deal into the range of 1.5 million. You understand? Yeah. Yeah. That's according do. to Mike Florio. Yeah, it's a little Florio, proven performance escalator. Hey, Pesca, what's your proven Yo, performance escalator? Little update on last week. I talked about the good baseball podcasts out there, and I said Fangraphs has a really good one. I mean, the content's nice, but the microphones are terrible. Guess what? They've informed me they've invested in better microphones. So I'll be listening to Fangraphs audio, seeing if the new microphones pay off. I just wanted to highlight, this is something I like Wait, to can do. I, can I interrupt you? Is there yeah. any other uh, podcast that has bad microphones? That you want to, it seems like you're able to really fix that problem by just talking about it out loud. Yeah. I wish there, most, yes, many, many podcasts have bad microphones, but most of them also have the content to match. If I find one, though, I will use my magic to uh, just shame them publicly into getting a better microphone. Sounds mm-hmm. good. Okay, continue. Yeah. So I like to do this about a month into the baseball season. A lot of people jump on the bandwagon of projecting stats after a week, after two weeks. Oh, it seems so funny. Let's take a month. Let's take about 25 games. So you multiply. We've played less than a sixth of the season. And let's look at the wacky stats, the wacky stats of the year. I want to point out 
that the Houston Astros, the possessors of the number one uh, status in the entire American League, their 18 wins equaled only by the Cardinals. So the Astros have the best record. They also have by far the most strikeouts. They lead the league with 231. Now, a lot of teams make the calculation, oh, strikeouts aren't that important. We'd rather take the good things that come with swinging for the fences. No one has done this to the extreme that the Astros have. Their 231 strikeouts projects to more than 1,300 strikeouts when the season ends. Last year, the team that led the league in strikeouts was the Chicago Cubs, 1477, and then the Houston Astros with 1442. So they were a terrible team who you could say, you know what their problem is? They strike out too often. Now they're this great offensive team and they still strike out too often. I think the Houston Astros are striking a blow for striking out. Another interesting stat been a lot of hit-by-pitches. Now, the Kansas City Royals have been in the middle of them. I think that uh, a lot of people are maybe gunning for the Royals. It seems to be motivated by Royals' hatred. And also, their pitcher is it Ventura, who throws at guys, just gets thrown out of games all the time. And as a result, they've been hit by 20 pitches. They do not lead the league in hit-by-pitches. The Texas Rangers lead the league in hit-by-pitches. They've been hit by 22 pitches. So this projects to about 130 hit by pitches for those Rangers on the year. Last year, the Cardinals led the league in hit by pitches with 86. The year before that, it was the Pirates with 88. The year before that, it was the Brewers with 90. So we're looking at a couple teams because Kansas City has 20 and the Rangers have 22, just obliterating the hit by pitch category. And then the third stat I'd like to talk about is D. Gordon. D. Gordon is fast, but not as fast as he thinks he is. D. Gordon has been caught stealing six times again. This projects out to almost 40 caught stealings on the year. A couple things about all the stealing statistics. They come in bunches in the beginning of the year usually, and as guys' legs get tired, they uh, they wane. And also, once a guy shows that he's just getting caught left and right, he'll get the green light less often. Although, why have a guy like D. Gordon even on your team? So, to look at uh, the last league leaders in caught stealing, last year it was Billy Hamilton with 23, but since he stole 56. Actually, D. Gordon was caught only 19 times against 64 steals last year. So, we're talking, but before that, if you look at the stats, in 2013, uh, uh, Sterling Marte, most caught stealings with 15. In 2012, Michael Bourne, most caught stealings with 13. Uh, Juan Pierre led the league in caught stealings with 17. Again, he is, D. Gordon is on a pace for almost 40 caught stealings. You've got to catch D. Gordon before he catches you. It's not true that guys' legs get tired. The, the legs get on. tired. They just have that. They don't want to steal as much. You've, you've done studies. Well, that's a, that's a statistic, caught stealing, where um, the on-paceness seems even more silly because if a guy gets caught stealing enough, he can just stop trying. Right. But will D. Gordon, this is my point, will D. Gordon stop trying? And the pitchers, the pickoff moves get tired also. So Their oh, arms, yeah. get tired. arms get tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Catchers, catchers, catchers in different spikes with the long. <laughs> the bases, <laughs> the long get, the bases get further apart. So Everyone just yawns. <laughs> yeah. Stefan, what's your proven performance escalator? Well, Mayweather Pacquiao went a full 12 rounds, lasted about an hour. 
36 minutes of boxing, actually. On the night of April 6th in 1893, Andy Bowen, a 129-pound fighter from New Orleans, and Texas Jack Burke, a 130-pounder from Galveston, Texas, climbed into the ring at the Olympic Club in Josh's New Orleans. They fought a bit longer than Manny and Money. The bout to decide the lightweight championship of the South started at 9.15 p.m. It ended at 4.19 the following morning. There was no intermission or unforeseen interruption. Bowen and Burke simply went for 110 rounds of three minutes each, more than seven hours. It remains the longest fight in the history of boxing. What the hell happened? Well, for one thing, boxing matches in the 19th century often continued until somebody won by knockout or technical knockout. Bowen's fight log included bouts of 18, 21, 22, 25, 28, 48, and 85 rounds. The 85-rounder coming just seven weeks after the 110-rounder against Burke. Burke's short career featured a 43-round fight, but the absence of fixed rounds meant that fighters often didn't fight. That certainly seems to be the case in the Bowen-Burke match. According to a story in the next day's New York Times, experts who were present at the battle said there were 14 rounds of actual fighting. The New York Herald said the event was marked by spirited work at the beginning, but near the end, the exhibition became tame and tiresome. A big reason was that Burke broke either both wrists or all or most of the bones in both of his hands and for round after round absorbed body blows while defending himself until both boxers were too weary to do much more than stand up. As the bout wore on, the Times reported, men were asleep in their seats and the disgust was general. After the 108th round, the referee, Professor John Duffy, announced that he would allow two more rounds No blow was struck in the two rounds, the Times said, so he adhered to his announcement. To Bowen's complaints, Duffy called the match a draw, and Bowen and Burke split the $2,500 purse. Burke fought only a few more times before leaving boxing. Bowen also only had a few more fights. He won that 85-rounder a few weeks later, despite breaking his hand around the 70th round. But he didn't leave boxing by choice. On December 14, 1894, in the 18th round against Kid Levine, That's L-A-V-I-G-N-E, by the way, Josh, no relation. Bowen was knocked down with a punch to the jaw, and he struck his head on the wooden floor of the ring at the Auditorium Club in New Orleans. He died the next morning, put to sleep for all time, the headline in the Times read. Levine was taken into custody and charged with murder, and his cornerman and timekeeper and the referee, the same Professor John Duffy, were charged as accomplices. An autopsy concluded that Bowen had died from concussion of the brain. The Times quoted one of Bowen's seconds, who said he had complained about the ring because it had no felt under the canvas, but that Bowen replied that it was all right and he would fight any way. Apparently, no one was prosecuted. Back to the 110-round fight, though. It's worth noting that the bout was just... I didn't want to end on that sour... On that sad... I didn't want to end (laughs) on that sad... No, yeah. End with the broken bones in every piece of his Exactly. (laughs) End on that happy note. We'll go back. Now, back to the 110-round fight. Now, and I'm going to swerve a little bit here. It's worth noting that the bout was one of just many important stories in the sports world in the New York Times that day. The paper led with a political squabble at the Amateur Athletic Union. There were horse racing results and entries, of course. Some AAU gymnastics. There was a big win for R. Stoll in the Flying Rings. The New York Yacht Racing Association decided to have a cruise on Long Island Sound during the month of July or later. And owing to the storm, neither New York, and that's new hyphen York, by the way, nor Brooklyn ball teams played games yesterday. If the weather permits... Today, T-O hyphen D-A-Y, the New Yorks will play the Princeton Nine on the polo grounds. At Eastern Park, Brooklyn, there will be a game between the Columbia College Boys 
and the Brooklyn's. And there was one more story that was better than all of those. It was the result of a sporting match. The match was Bowen Burke-like. It involved animals. I'm not going to tell you anymore. Next week, after ball, teed up, ready to go. After ball teaser. Ooh, come, back, come back for the after ball. Wow. Stack them up. Record it today. Pre-record. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, what's your proven performance escalator? I was in Texas this weekend for a wedding, as discussed previously with Jordan Spieth's golf bag. Got me to thinking about the Astrodome. I watched a lot of baseball games in my youth uh, when I went to Houston to visit my family. I asked my grandfather, what's going on with the Astrodome? Absolutely nothing, he told me. So I, I investigated this further. The dome opened in 1965, first multi-purpose dome stadium on the planet, known as the eighth wonder of the world. It really needs no introduction. It did host, though, it, as long as I'm here, baseball's Houston Astros and football's Houston Oilers until the late 90s, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo until 2002. For the last seven years, at least, since the Houston Fire Department deemed it in violation of the fire code, it has sat empty in the shadow of neighboring Reliant Stadium, which is uh, the home stadium for the Houston Texans of the NFL. Uh, the Dome just passed its 50th anniversary, and nobody is sure what to do with it, uh, whether to knock it down or to preserve it. In 2013, Houstonians voted down a bond proposal, $217 million one, that would have turned the Dome into a convention center complex. Uh, it makes sense that that was rejected because there's already a convention center next door to the Astrodome. The latest idea is to turn it into an indoor amusement park. Uh, the CEO of Harris County, Judge Ed Emmett, is in Germany, just went to Germany, to look at a place called the Tropical Islands Resort. According to Houston's KPRC TV station, this uh, Tropical Islands Resort was built inside an old Zeppelin hangar. Uh, we're not trying to turn the Astrodome into a tropical island or anything like that, Emmett told the TV station. But we need to see what's involved in the public-private partnership, the engineering questions, and what can be grown indoors. So I looked into what uh, the deal is with the Tropical Islands Resort, and it does seem like maybe they are trying to turn the Astrodome into a tropical island or something like that. Uh, it covers an area of 10,000 square meters. The Tropical Islands Resort features a rainforest that covers an area of 10,000 square meters. We'll have to figure out how to convert that away from the metric system once it goes to Houston. They won't stand for that. It's home to around 50,000 plants of 600 different varieties, from travelers' palms to Bengal trumpets. Um, there's a magic show at Tropical Islands, Fantasia Tropical, features international dancers, acrobats, jugglers, and tightrope walkers. It's a unique combination of variety and circus acts with a Latin American flavor. The highlight of the show? Anyone want to guess? It's the uh, Someone breaking their hand 14 <laughs> places during a 300-round fight. You're, you're closer than you think. <laughs> it's the amazing Wheel of Death, the legendary circus acrobatic act that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Plus, there are foot-tapping dance numbers. You got to have this. Mm -hmm. Bungee jumping and breathtaking rope acts. Truly spectacular entertainment. Also, fancy a round of golf? Our miniature 18-hole golf course features real greens and an original design for players of different abilities. Also, ever since the beginning of time, people have been longing to fly. That's but wait, there's more. <laughs> now you can make the dream come true with a breathtaking ride in a tropical islands, tethered or free-floating balloon. Also, there's an acrobatic workshop for kids, Latino dance class, fun for young and old. That's at 1 p.m. daily. 
salsa dance gymnastics. And my favorite at 1 p.m. in the tropical sea. And I quote, clown surprises. (laughs) So fingers crossed that the Astrodome becomes this tropical islands resort thing, or at least Germany's interpretation of what a tropical islands resort is. If that happens, I will go back for the first time since the last Astros game that I went to. Counter argument, though. You got to present the the best argument for the other side. There's a time capsule buried underneath the Astrodome that they just found. It can only be on Earth when the stadium is destroyed. So we pretty much need to knock it down because there might be like a novelty record in there from 1965. So wait, so let me see if I understand. Yeah, our choices are Henry the Eighth. I am. I am. Our choices are number one. You just did that on the gist. Yeah. Our choices are turn it into a tropical rainforest. Tropical rainforest. Or destroy museum, it and get a novelty record out of a time capsule. Time capsule from 1965. Yeah. So I. The last time I was in the Houston Astrodome was the only time. It was in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina evacuees were housed there. And I was like, oh, this thing hasn't been used in years. And it hadn't at that point. And in fact, George Strait cut an album called For the Last Time Live from the Houston Astrodome. And that was released in 2003. But I see these references that it was used until 2008. I can't figure it out what was the last thing. Yeah, I saw that too. George Strait concert in 2002 was supposedly the last thing. I think what probably happened was the fire department said that there couldn't be anything in it after 2008, like kind of making official what had been unofficial. Right. So maybe maybe my being in there with Katrina evacuees was the last time it was actually used, although not for an event. Huh. Well, congratulations, I guess. Yeah, sure. It's about me. All, All about right. me. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to hang up and listen in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Come a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang up and listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.